for some background, let me, let me bring you up to speed. In this part of Exodus, we're in the part where God has been giving Moses lots and lots of instructions about this thing called the tabernacle, right? Uh, so if you don't know, this tabernacle back then was this big mobile structure. You could set it up and take it down that God designed for his own dwelling. It's the way that he was going to be with his people. His presence would be in the tabernacle. It would make it holy. And the Israelites, God's people, because they uh, were a nomadic people, right? They traveled. Uh, were taking it everywhere with them. And when we get to Exodus 31, God's been giving this, uh, this, this country, his people, uh, specifically Moses, this list of specs and measurements and materials for how to build this tabernacle, right? Um, and he's like going through, you know, this is how big the lampstand should be. This is how to make it. This is like the dimensions of the curtain, blah, blah, blah. And this is kind of one of those parts of the Bible that reading plans go to die. You know, you know, those parts of the Bible where like, like genealogy is another one where um, it's like when your friend or when you're reading through uh, this part of the Bible and someone asks you like, oh, how's reading the Bible been? You're like, oh. Like, I've been adding a psalm a day, you know, or I've, been, I've also been, like, praying a lot, mostly, and listening to, to songs and stuff. It's like one of those parts of the Bible. Um, but I actually think that there's, a, there's a lot that can inform us uh, when we get to this point in chapter 31. So, we're in Exodus 31, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri son of her of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him with Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, uh, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded. It makes you feel any better. I had to Google the pronunciations for every single one of those names. Um, but there's something that we can learn here, right? So what we're reading is that God wanted Israel to worship him. So he, he gives them this tabernacle, the designs for this place where they will enjoy his presence. And he commands them to get to work. But he also equips these two guys, right? Bezalel and Aholiab, to do the work. You see that? In other words, God is working through these two guys and everyone who would help them for Israel's benefit. And in fact, notice how he works through them. Notice in verse 3 what he says. God filled Bezalel with the Spirit. Right? And then he goes on and talks about how talented this guy is. He's able, he's intelligent, he's knowledgeable, he's a good craftsman, artistic, good with different materials. Right? So, just to clarify, this isn't the same kind of like being filled with the Spirit that we typically think of. Right? Like when we become a Christian, the Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. Like John 3, uh, Jesus says that becoming a Christian means being born again, born by the Spirit. It's not like that. right? This, in real simple terms, means that God made this guy talented. Like he equipped him to do this work well. The bottom line is that God aimed to bless Israel, and he did it through the labor of this person. And he gave this person the necessary abilities and experience. Um, so, so look, non-Christians can say a lot of the right things about work, right? It's a way to help others. You need to have talent. You need to have training. Like, they would agree with us, uh, and they would agree with the Bible on those points. But here is the primary thing uh, that we can't miss. 
It's that in our labor, God works through us to bless others. In our labor, God works through us to bless others, and he equips us for that work. Right, so when we think about, like, the gospel and work, right, when you go through this series, it's not just that you should be thinking, like, oh, I've got schoolwork, I've got my work work, you know, how do I bring God and my Christianity and the Bible into that space? Right, that's not the only thing that we're thinking. It, it, in, in fact, it's flipped, and I, and I really think that the bigger point is God is doing this work. How does he bring me into that? Does it make sense? How does, he, how does he assign me to that? And how does he equip me for that? Just like he did for these men uh, back in Israel. Another case study. All right, so we're just going through case studies. Turn to 1 Samuel 16. So we looked at Exodus 31. I want you to turn over to 1 Samuel 16. Let me give you some more background for this one. So here in 1 Samuel 16, we're coming to the point where Israel's demanding a king. You might remember that, right? Israel wasn't happy with the theocracy they had. They wanted a monarch. And God has this prophet named Samuel. Samuel's the guy who God says, all right, you're going to be the one who finds the king. So Samuel goes to this guy named Jesse. Uh, and Jesse's got a bunch of sons. He's got a big family, okay? And so he lines all these sons up. You might have heard this story before. And Samuel's going through one by one and is like, is it this guy? This guy looks pretty good. Is it this guy? No, not that one either. And he goes down the line, right? You guys might have heard the story or remember the story because the famous uh, line that everybody quotes is that God looks at the inward appearance, right? Looks at the heart and man looks at the outward appearance. Um, at least people who are like five, six, like me, that's what we quote all the time, right? Like, <laughs> that's how we think about it. Uh, but I want you to notice something that isn't as frequently observed. Okay, there's something that's really important here later on in the passage, actually. And it's in verses 12 and 13. Okay? So we're in 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 12, or at the end of verse 12. Because at this point, Samuel gets through the entire line, and he gets to this kid named David, the youngest of the lot. And here's what happens. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And, listen, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. See that? See what happened? Right? We've seen this, that David gets picked to the king, to be the king. Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. God wants a king to rule Israel, so he appoints David, he chooses David, that's the anointing, and then he equips him to lead the country the right way. The Spirit rushes upon him. So that David can help Israel follow the Lord and prosper. God chooses and equips the king for his work. So Deacon, the bottom line is this. God works through our work to help others. That is the whole point of our work. So in our work, we are merely participating in the work that God does in helping. It is in that way that our work has meaning. In the way that it blesses others. That's why work is inherently good. Martin Luther had a term for this. He would call it uh, the masks of God. The masks of God. And he argued, Luther argued, that on the surface we see ordinary humans, right? We see doctors, computer engineers, salesmen, right? Musicians, cashiers, missionaries, pastors, whatever, right? Pick whatever profession. But beneath the appearances, Luther pointed out, God is ministering to others through them. 
As one author put it, God is hidden in human vocations. Our vocations are the masks of God. And that's why they're inherently good, because God ministers to people through us. Now, um, a lot of times we don't think about it that way. right? A lot of times we think about it in terms of like provision or uh, the paycheck or the way to get by. right? And I think in like a capitalist society, um, especially for a lot of college-educated folks, a lot of even Asian-Americans, uh, it's easy to swallow the concept that jobs are good because of what they provide. Right? That, that one comes easy. Okay? You hear it all the time. People who work jobs that they don't like, what do they say? It pays the bills, right? keeps the lights on, somebody's got to do it, it puts food on the table, whatever. Right? Um, how do we recognize people who do a good job? Higher compensation. right? You raise them, whatever. And the Bible does say that we should provide, just to get that clear. Uh, Francis mentioned this last week, this 1 Timothy 5.8, which says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Really strong language that tells us that it is a commandment to provide. Right? Paychecks also give us the means to be generous with others. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, so the idea of working to, to get money to provide is definitely in, uh, in the Bible. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to push against that, right? I'm not saying like, look, work is just loving people, so you should just volunteer all the time. Like forget jobs, just like do, do good things out of the, the goodness of your heart. Um, because it's not less than providing. It's not less than making money to be generous. But it's way more than that. And it's not primarily about just the paycheck. It's primarily good because God uses our work to bless, and he trains us for it. So in that way, work is inherently good. Um, if you've been at Lighthouse for like literally any amount of time, you've probably heard someone here say that a good way to, to view Christians is in three ways, right? A saint, sinner, and sufferer. Saint, sinner, and suffer. So everybody's got the good, everybody's got the bad, and everybody's got the hard. And I think that this is a good way to think about our work. Okay, um, For anything that we're studying, for anything that we're doing, right? we can always ask those three questions. What good does this do? How does it restrain sin in the world? And how does it alleviate pain and suffering? What good can I do with this job? How can I use this job to restrain evil? And how can I meet the needs of others who are in pain and suffering? So this is where we make it personal. Okay, Beacon, whether you're a student, right, or you're, you're actually getting ready to work or you're already working, these truths need to change two things about our work. Okay, so two takeaways here. Number one, this should change the why. This should change the why. Because if the reason that we work is to participate in the work that God is doing through us to bless others, then, then it's not about us, right? It's about him, and it's about other people. The focus of our work then turns away from us and what we get from work to helping others and participating in the work that God is doing in their lives. So it's not, then, about getting a bigger platform or paycheck. It's not about personal gain, moving up in the world, the corporate ladder. 
It's not about making a name for ourselves or winning the approval of your family or your friends or parents. It's not even about achieving a certain standard of living, right, quality of life, so you can live in a certain zip code, go to a certain school district. But if we're being honest, our self-centered motives, they, they affect so much of what we do, right? So, uh, so we need to be honest with ourselves and evaluate the why. Because the why isn't about us, it's about God and others. The second thing that this should change is it should change the how. It should change the how. So this changes the why we work, it also changes the how we work. If we're being honest, Deacon, a lot of us, we just need to work harder. We just need to work harder, right? Uh, if we recognize that we want to participate in the work that God is doing, then that should change how hard we work. Because we should want to bring good to people. We should want to restrain sin. We should want to alleviate pain and suffering. That's an incredible thing. Right? But how, how often do we like wake up excited, like, I can't wait to go to class so that I can love people? Right? I can't wait to go to my nine-hour shift today so that I can bless the world. Right? That's just not how we think. And so because that's not how we think, we don't work particularly hard. But imagine if that's what you woke up with. Imagine if that's what you walked to class with. Right, or filled out applications with, or went to work with. Imagine if you saw it as this glorious calling to bless others and to steward how God has allowed you to bless people. If you're working, can you show up excited because you, because you get to participate in that? If you're studying, can you study with excitement because you get to participate in that? Um, I think uh, if you're like me, uh, a lot of times, it's easy to see like good works, Christian things, as like in one category, and then the studying and the work is in another category, right? Uh, so when I was at UCLA, um, I saw, I, I looked at all this stuff that I was doing, like at church or in AACF, right? Um, and and that was the stuff I worked really hard at. I put a lot of time into it. Uh, but when it came to like school stuff, and Francis, uh, who knew me in college, and others can can attest to this, like. That was way at the bottom of my list, right? I spent a lot of time uh, doing, you know, ministry stuff or church stuff. Spent a lot of time with people, hanging out with them, right? Going to El Chato, uh, playing NBA 2K with them, right? I spent a lot of time doing that stuff with them, uh, but classes just weren't a priority. Um, because for me, there was that disconnect, right? There's that like work that I do for God. That's the that's the Christian stuff, and I should have seen my academics and my preparation for a career as falling into the same category, but I just didn't. There was that disconnect. We've, we've got to bridge that disconnect and see that it's all one and the same. That it's all how we work for the Lord. Whether that's a church or on your campus ministry, uh, with your roommates, with your fellowship, in a class, volunteering or at work, it's all the same. Um, there's this pastor named Tim Keller who tried to address this disconnect with the example of an airplane, uh, an airplane pilot, right? So he's like, okay, what's the Christian way to fly a plane? What's the, what's the Christian way to fly a plane? I'll tell you what the Christian way to fly a plane is. Land. Like, if you're really good, land the plane so that it can one day take off again, right? His point being... The Christian way of doing work 
is to see that that work blesses others. So do the best you can to do that. So Beacon, the question for you is, are you doing what you need to do to land the plane? And whatever you're doing, are you doing what you need to do to do it best? Second, the gospel gives you mercy. The gospel gives you mercy. These next three points will be faster. Um, maybe you're, you're listening to this and you're thinking like, well, I've, I've definitely failed, right? Even this week, I've failed. Um, I procrastinated. I was lazy, right? I missed the deadline. I didn't study as hard as, as, hard as I should have. Um, and, you, and you're seeing your laziness. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum and you're seeing that like, no, I am a hard worker, but it's all for myself. It's all about me. You know, it's because I have ambition. I have uh, these goals for my own life. Maybe you can even think of things that you've done in class or at work that are unethical, right? Ways that you've cut corners, ways that you've cheated uh, on a test in a project, ways that you've told white lies so that you could uh, make things better for yourself. Or maybe you can think of times when you've stopped doing the stuff that you know you should do because work mattered that much to you or school mattered that much to you, right? So dropping the ball on church, dropping the ball on your relationship with God, reading the Bible, praying, things like that, that you just ignore because work or school became more important to you. Or maybe you feel the exact opposite. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're like, look, I've got a 4.0, you know, I've got uh, the best companies offering me or the best grad schools offering me. Uh, and so I've done my work in a god way. Whichever camp you fall in, uh, I, I think we, we need to look at how the gospel addresses that with mercy. So turn to 1 John with me. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 5 and go through to verse 10. And I want you to look for like the themes that repeat themselves throughout these verses. Okay, so 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John kind of repeats himself, right? Says the same thing in different ways a lot here. Uh, but there are two main takeaways, two main themes that I hope you notice. Okay? The first is our sin. First is coming face to face with our sin. Look at verses 8 and 10 again. To say otherwise is to deceive ourselves and to call God a liar. To say that we're not sinful is to, to deceive ourselves and to call God a liar. Right? And so, so when we look at our failures when it comes to school or work, maybe they don't feel as bad. Right? Maybe they don't feel as bad as like your gossip-filled conversations or the way that you've hurt others or what you've done uh, with your computer or your significant other behind closed doors, uh, what you've done with your friends uh, late at night or at parties. Like, it doesn't feel as bad as those things. But this passage forces us to come face to face with the reality that these things, too, are sin. 
So the ways that we've exhibited laziness, the ways that we've neglected to take care of the responsibilities God has given to us at work and in school, those things, just as much as sexual immorality, anger gone wrong, impatience, unkindness, gossip, whatever, it's all sin. It's all sin. So what do we do? Well, just like God would offer you mercy with any other sin, he offers it to you here as well. And that's the second takeaway in this passage. Look back at 1 John 1 and look at verses 7 and 9. John writes, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And then, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, see, God created our world. He created Adam. He created humanity the right way. And he gave us a task to work hard to make the world right, to bless others, uh, to control and to, to, uh, to, to, to rule in God's stead uh, his creation and to do it joyfully and to do it in worship to him. But we've failed in that calling. We've failed. Right? We, we make our jobs our gods. And, and so we, we chase after success and money and promotions and uh, letters of, of acceptance. And, and we discard God and put him to the side. Or we're lazy and we procrastinate and we don't care, take care of the responsibilities that God has given to us. And we fail him in that way. In so many ways and in between, we've failed God. And for that and for so much of the rest of our sin, we deserve condemnation. And that's the reality we face, but the gospel tells us that Jesus comes to us, and he lives the perfect life that we could never live. And it's not just about like being sexually pure, and it's not just about uh, not gossiping, and it's not just about those like big, highlighted, marquee sins that we feel really bad about. It's for all unrighteousness, as verse 9 puts it. It's for all the ways in which we have failed God, even the ones that we don't feel bad enough about. And Jesus lives that life that we could never live and then goes to the cross. And there he dies for sinners like you and me, and he offers us this exchange. And he says, if you want my life, put your faith in me. And I'll take your punishment for you. And I'll take all of it, all of the impurity, the disobedience, the laziness, everything, and I'll die for you. And you get to go before God as if you'd never done any of those things, as if you'd live perfectly so that he can accept you and bring you into his presence with joy. And then Jesus walks out of the grave three days later, victorious over sin and death. And that gospel tells us that no matter what you've done, no matter how you've failed, that there's life and life abundant for you that Jesus offers. So, so what the gospel does, guys, is if you're walking into this room and, and you're thinking about all the ways in, in which you've failed to be a good student, in which you've failed to put God first in your schoolwork, then go to the cross. Because the cross is for people like you. If you're thinking about all the ways where you've let God down, this incredible, glorious calling to be excited about the work you do, the school that you take, because it's a way to participate in God's glorious work, then go to the cross. 
because it takes failures and it takes people like us who need saving. I think there are two applications of mercy here. Two applications here. Number one, work to please your father. Work to please your father. Um, when you are like doing schoolwork, right, or when you're, when you're trying to hit a deadline, when you're trying to, to fill out an application, a lot of times, if you're like me, it's like, I just gotta get this done, right? This is just what I'm doing, I just gotta get this done, and we don't think much more about it. But imagine if every assignment we ever had, we could do to please our father. Kevin DeYoung gives this uh, illustration of his kids. I don't have kids, so I'm just, that's why I'm borrowing him, because uh, I can't do it personally. So Kevin DeYoung gives this illustration of his kids and, um, and how when they were in elementary school, like kindergarten, real young, they would, go to, uh, they would go to the classroom and on holidays, they would have these like special arts and crafts things that they would bring back home. Right, so I don't know if you ever did this, um, but like one of them on Thanksgiving would be to take their hand and then you like put it in brown paint and you, you know, put it on a piece of paper and then it becomes a turkey, right? Like you put like leaves on it and stuff like that. And then they would bring it home uh, to their dad, to Kevin, uh, and then show it to him, right? This laminated, like, really awful looking, like it's, you know, I can't even tell that it's a turkey, you have to tell me that it's a turkey, kind of thing. And, and Kevin says, as a father, there was nothing that made him happier than those crafts. There's nothing that made him happier than those turkeys. Because it wasn't about the quality of the turkey, it wasn't like some Picasso, right? But it was his kids. It was his kids. And they did that, whatever it was, because they wanted to make him happy. And I think similarly, similarly, when we detach our work, our studying, our shifts, whatever we're doing, from our father, then yeah, it's just something that you gotta do. It's just something that you gotta get But if we saw everything that we did in our schooling and in our workplaces as turkeys that we're wanting to bring home to our father, to please him, well, how would that change things? How would that change things? The gospel of mercy tells us that, father, that, uh, that we now have a father, that our God, who is our wrathful judge, has now become our loving father because he adopted us into his family, and that changes everything about how we work. So whatever studying you do, whatever internship you're taking on this summer, whatever job you're going to apply for, uh, let me encourage you do it to feel the pleasure of your father. Next, second application. Never stop playing. Never stop playing. Um, we're going to fail, right? We're going we're gonna to mess up, and, and we're going to let God down and disobey him in so many ways. And, and I think for a lot of us, uh, if, if we don't get this mercy bit right, then, then we're left to our own devices, right? I just gotta study harder, I just gotta uh, work harder on my resume, whatever, and I gotta make up for it. Um, but the gospel of mercy tells us that no matter how often we fail, God gives us another chance. Um, back in 2015, uh, Francis and I were on this road trip with the rest of our WCF class. Uh, it was like a reunion thing up to NorCal. And it was really late. We left uh, at like 10 or 11, uh, I forget why, but uh, we're driving up, it's like pitch black. Um, and, and at that time, uh, I was going through uh, a lot, right? So I had um, been 
I was dating this girl, and then we broke it up, and I was dating this other girl, and uh, there was a lot of like sin, a lot of idolatry that was coming out of the relationship that I kept in the quiet for a long time, uh, and and I'd never confessed it to anybody. Uh, no one had 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 heard of it before, um, but Francis, uh, I don't know. There's something about like his smile and it being 12:30 a.m. and it being pitch black outside and us being on the only ones on this road for miles and miles and miles that just caused me uh, to, to want to open up to him. So I started telling him a little bit, right? And you know how you kind of use vague terms and, uh, and don't want to give all the details, but eventually it was like just this full-blown confession. And that went on for like half an hour. And I remember at the end of it, um, feeling a lot of things, but primarily two things. First, relieved that someone finally knew, but second, discouraged beyond all belief. Because I'd gone through ACF, I'd been raised in the church, and I knew all the right things, and I knew even when I was doing uh, those things that they were bad, and, I, and so I knew them in the moment. And I couldn't quite see a way back. I couldn't quite see a way back. It was pitch black. Outside, there was no light at the end of the tunnel uh, physically, but there also wasn't any in my mind uh, for myself. And I, and I asked Francis, like, how this had happened, why God had let this happen, and how I was ever going to get better from it. And I told him, I feel like I've never done a good thing in my life. I remember saying that to him, and, and really meaning it, because I felt like I'd undone all of it. Uh, and I'll never forget what Francis said. And it was really simple, because you know man, uh, the man is not a, a man of many words, right? But it's something that will stick with me for the rest of my life. Francis said, just love him today. Just love him today. I was feeling like I'd never loved Christ for a moment in my life, like genuinely loved God, and I'd been exposed for the whole world to see for the sinner that I was. And Francis said, just love him today. And I think that's what the gospel of mercy does. When it comes to your work, when it comes to your failures, whatever they look like, the gospel tells you that you can go to God and just love him today. His mercies are new every morning, and God calls us to keep playing. So never stop playing. Never give up. Third, the gospel gives you a master. So meaning, mercy, and master. Turn to Romans 6 with me. Romans 6. So in Romans 6, um, well, in the previous chapters leading up to Romans 6, Paul is doing uh, this really, really in-depth, uh, like, intricate argument about why we're justified by faith, okay? Why the only thing that we can trust in is this free gift of mercy that Jesus offers in the gospel. And then in verse 1, at the beginning of Romans 6, he addresses this common follow-up question that people use or, or ask when they hear about the gospel of grace. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? <clears throat> right? Maybe you've even had this question before. Right? Basically what he's saying is, is well, if God is going to forgive me anyway, then, then couldn't I argue that I could just keep sinning? Right? Uh, if, if I know that God is a loving and forgiving God who accepts me no matter what, who only sees me because of Jesus' life and Jesus' perfection, then I'm good. I can do whatever I want. Uh, the more I sin, the more grace he'll forgive, and so I have license to do whatever I want. Look at how Paul answers. Look at how Paul continues in Romans 6. By no means, 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Okay, so note what he's saying. He's saying, look, when you become a Christian, it's not just about getting forgiven. It's about getting killed. It's not just about getting forgiven. It's, it's about getting killed. The old self, the person who wanted nothing to do with God, who hated God, as Romans 3 says, the person who followed the course of this world, right, who lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind, that's uh, of, the of the body and the mind, that's Ephesians 2. That person gets killed, is crucified on the cross. And so when Jesus died, you die. When Jesus died, you die. And then he continues, look back at verse 4. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right, so, so you're united with Jesus on the cross. You die with him, but you're also raised with him. You get this new life where you can follow him, enjoy him, cherish him forever. And then, and here's the kicker, skip to verses 6 uh, through 11. Sorry, 16 uh, through uh, we're going to start in verse 16. Skip to verse 16 to, to look at the implications uh, of this truth. Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You're either slaves of sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Okay, do you see how, how, how Paul is making this argument here? Beacon, we all served something. Everybody in the world is enslaved to something. When it comes to you, your schooling, your job, whatever. And, and he's making the argument, before you're saved, right? You, you'll serve a master that's anything besides God. You're going to serve money. You're going to serve fame. You're going to serve, serve approval, comfort, security, yourself. But when Jesus rescues you, he gives you a new master. You serve the true and living God. Do you see that switch? We all serve something. So the question isn't do we serve? The question is whom do we serve? And the gospel gives us a new master to serve. And that has three implications for us. That has three implications. First, it means the master's in control. So we can have peace. The master is in control, so we can have peace. Um, I know a lot of you uh, have had doubts, maybe even recently, about like what you're going to do with your life. Uh, whether you're graduating or you're just thinking about the future, you know, you're like, I don't know what major to pick. I'm having this like quarter life crisis. You know, uh, I thought that it was one thing, but it, maybe it should be another. I really don't know where, where God wants me. What's His will for my life? Those kinds of questions. And I hope that the truth that God is your master gives you peace. Because if God indeed is your master and loves you and knows everything about you, then he's God. Then he's predestined a life of good works, including what you do professionally. And he'll just take you through it. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Magnus Carlsen videos recently. Does anyone know who Magnus Carlsen is? So he's like the best chess player in the world right now besides computers. Um, and I don't know why, like I, I'm not good at chess. I don't own a chess board, I don't play chess. Uh, I've just been watching this guy because it's fascinating to me uh, that, so, that someone can look at these like pieces on a board for hours and hours and hours uh, and, 
and, and make a whole world out of it and, and study for their whole lives. And Magnus Carlsen, the incredible thing about these videos uh, is uh, he'll be like, apparently, I didn't know this before, a chessboard is like uh, divided into rows and columns and you can assign a letter and a number to each column, right? So it's like A1, A2, A3, different squares. And so during these videos, Magnus Carlsen will be like, um, okay, so if he goes there, then I'm gonna do like A2, B4, F3, you know, C1, and then either a D3 or, a, or an E6. And I'm like, you're just making this up. Like nobody can like fact check you on this. So you, you know you can just spew random letters and numbers. Um, but it's incredible to watch because he's such a master at it. He's so good with it. He, he knows all the positions. He's, had, he's got them all memorized. Um, like tactically, positionally, he understands the whole game. Uh, if you're a, a chess piece that's being played by Magnus Carlsen, right, you don't have to worry too much about if you're a, a knight or a bishop, right? Uh, the knight is a horsey thing, right? Uh, you don't have to worry too much about if you get sacked or if you make it to the end of the game. You don't have to worry too much about if you get played for you know, five moves straight or not played at all for, for 10. You, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff because you know that this guy knows what he's doing. And he knows what your job is, he knows how to move you, and he knows how to win with you as part of the team. And I think the idea is similar, right? If we're like those chess pieces, and God is our master, then we can be at peace. Because even if we don't quite understand our role, or how things are going to play out down the line, uh, we know that he does. We know that he does. And, and so if you're feeling anxious about your major selection, where you're going to apply, where you're going to live, or what profession even to go into, take hope and peace in the fact that God is your master. That God is your master. Uh, second implication. It means that we work by God's rules. It means that we work by God's rules. If God is the master, right, that he gets to, to dictate on his own terms how we live. Um, I don't know about you, but, but I, I definitely had a lot of opportunities to like skirt uh, and, and cut corners uh, with, uh, with my classes when I was uh, taking classes at, uh, at UCLA. And even in my job, right, there are a lot of opportunities um, to, to cut corners to get ahead. Right? And it doesn't even have to be outright cheating, right? I think we all know kind of what it looks like. Um, but think about for a moment what it would mean for God to be your master. For God to be your master, right? Like take laziness as an example. If I'm at work and I'm being lazy that particular day and I'm like scrolling on Facebook uh, or watching NBA highlights, right? Or watching Kawhi's uh, shot in game seven for the like 50 millionth time uh, and my boss walks in, my direct supervisor walks into the room, what do I do? I don't keep watching, right? <laughs> I close it because that's my supervisor. That person is my master um, at my job. In the same way, right? We, if we know we're accountable to somebody, if we know we're accountable to God, um, then we want to do things on his terms. Uh, imagine for a moment what it would be like if you felt that God was with you and watching and by your side 24-7. How would that change how you work? Would that change how you study? Uh, would that change... Uh, the moments when you're tempted uh, to cut a corner or to break a rule to get ahead. How would that change things? 
And finally, it means that we give God glory. It means we give God glory. Turn to Matthew 5 with me. Matthew 5. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. 15 through, uh, sorry, 14 through 16. 14 through 16. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, do you see that last phrase? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So ask yourself, how would that change what I do? How would that change what I do if the aim of everything I did was to do it well so that God could get the glory, right? If you're writing code, are you thinking about how uh, other people are going to see your work ethic and give God glory? Uh, if you're a pre-med, are you hoping that you're going to look good or that your God will look good, right? If you're selling something, if you're marketing something, is it your reputation that's going to go up because you can bring in a certain amount of revenue or is it God's because you're working for him? If you're designing, creating, playing something for the musicians, for the artists, who are you hoping stands in the spotlight at the end of the day? The point is, in everything that we do, no matter what the profession, God should re receive glory. And that brings us to our final point, point number four. The gospel gives us the means. The gospel gives us the means. Our final passage is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. That's the last thing we'll be looking to. Flip to, to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. And I'm cheating a little bit here because I preached on this passage recently for being before. Um, so if you remember it, good. Uh, if you don't, that's okay because you're about to, to get a summary of it again. In Philippians 2, Paul gives us this command in verses 12 and 13, that I think can give us a lot of hope uh, for the rest of our lives, and especially when it comes to our work. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then listen here in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right, so because you're looking at all these things that we've talked about, like, oh, I've got to work harder, right? Or I've got to work less hard because it's become idolatry, right? And, and we're stressed out about all these commandments and requirements that God has laid on us for how we're to work. And, and wondering how we're going to get there, remember that God works in you. And your work is just evidence that he's already working. This is a God who is powerful, who created you, who knew you from the beginning, formed you in your mother's womb, has conquered life, has conquered death, and, and won you life on your behalf. He is the one who is making you the student, the employee that you need to be. This is a God who loves you, who knows your name, who's been kind to you, who's given you everything that you've ever needed and provided you in ways that you don't even recognize every single moment of your life. This is the God who's working in you 
to make you the student, the employee that you need to be. And so I want to end with hope because we're not in it ourselves. We're not in it on our own. We're not in it without a God who is by our side. This is a God who will work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure until he brings us to the very end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word and, uh, and the many truths that you, uh, that you speak to us uh, in it. But above all, thank you for revealing yourself, uh, a God who, who gives us um, meaning because you're the one who's working in this world and you just allow us to participate in that work. Uh, a God who gives us uh, mercy in all, our, all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our idolatry, offers us forgiveness so now we, we can call you Father and, and just work to please you uh, and, and have a new mercies every morning. A Father uh, who's given to us um, in, in everything uh, that we do, who's given uh, to us uh, the, the way to live, who is our master. Uh, Father, you, you've given us uh, yeah, a, a way to serve something that isn't sin, that isn't ourselves. You've given us life uh, in service to you. And Father, you give us hope because you give us the power to live out the lives that you that you call us to live. So, Father, I pray that um, that more than just I need to work harder or I, I need to work less hard um, coming out of tonight, that each and every one of us uh, would see you more clearly uh, as this God um, who has has designed work to glorify yourself, uh, and that it's just an incredible thing that we get to participate in that work that you're doing. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. We love you. Praise you.